I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. Violent, don't wanna have a vendetta, don't wanna be vengeful, no. I don't wanna be a soldier, don't wanna be militaristic, don't wanna help that cycle, I just wanna be a countercultural pacifist. I don't want to be a racist, don't want to be a capitalist, don't want to be sexist, no. I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, I wanna be humble, I wanna be progressive, I wanna be open, I'm inspiration, I wanna be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao, I wanna be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Dillim, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, or Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just wanna be me. Just wanna be me. Hey Dunker Punks, thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the Dunker Punks Podcast. I'm Emmett Wachowski Eldred, one of your hosts. In today's episode, we're excited to bring you a message from Nolan McBride. Nolan is a student at Manchester University in Indiana, and he's originally a member of Union Center Church of the Brethren, which is also in Indiana. But Nolan is studying for a year in the United Kingdom, and that's where he recorded today's episode. Nolan's episode is all about his search for a faith community to call home while he's studying abroad. There aren't any churches of the Brethren in the United Kingdom. In fact, there isn't much that's quite like the Church of the Brethren at all. Fortunately, Nolan has an open heart and a palpable interest in learning about the different traditions and styles of worship that make different faith communities unique and special. It's a pleasure to hear Nolan describe his search for a spiritual home away from home, a place to find nourishment for his soul, as well as a community of people to connect with, to find welcome from, and to serve alongside. And moreover, I think that Nolan is describing a familiar experience for a lot of us. Finding a faith community was a big concern and a big struggle during the years that I spent in college in a city without an active Church of the Brethren. In our tiny denomination, I know that I'm not the only one who has moved somewhere new and found it difficult to adjust. Searching for those touchstones through which 
Uh, we can incorporate our brethren roots into our daily living and our relationship with God and our community while also opening up our hearts to hear God speaking from new places and being reflected across different faces. You know, I just wish that I had had Nolan's outgoing spirit to reach out and find and connect with new communities and his degree of open-hearted curiosity to find the best and also to find the familiar in new places, traditions, and people. It certainly is inspiring and also instructive to hear Nolan speak to his experiences. So with that, let's hear from Nolan. Hello, everybody. Nolan again. Last time I talked about the importance of knowing the stories of those who went before us and claiming our spiritual heritage, a theme I plan to return to in later episodes. But what about the communities we find ourselves in right now? What can we learn from other followers of Christ, maybe even those of radically different traditions and backgrounds? This is something I've been thinking about quite a bit lately, personally, as I've been studying in the United Kingdom since September. Last December, I was asked to write a blog post for Brethren Life and Thought about my experiences, which was posted in January. Thinking on this a bit more, I want to expand on that post for this episode. So here's a bit of my personal musings on my experience of finding community in the church abroad. I knew St. Mary's would be my spiritual home for the academic year from the moment I first visited the parish. Located in Presbury, a small village just outside of Cheltenham, the English town I'm spending this year studying abroad in through BCA. St. Mary's feels the most like home of any of the churches I visited while in the UK. A friendly, welcoming parish nestled near the edge of the surrounding countryside. To me, St. Mary's wouldn't feel out of place among the rural brethren congregations of my childhood and college experience at Manchester University. This may come as a surprise for lifelong brethren to say, considering St. Mary's is firmly entrenched in the smells and bells, high church, Anglo-Catholic wing of the Church of England. While I recently learned of a couple of brethren house churches in London, started by La Inglesia Evangelica de los Hermanos, or Church of the Brethren in Spain, there is very little Anabaptist, let alone brethren, presence in my area of the country. While I'm used to people not having heard of our small denomination before, I quickly found that my old standby of we're kind of like the Mennonites when explaining who we are wasn't particularly helpful for people who've never heard of the Mennonites either. Not that I've ever been particularly satisfied with that explanation anyway. There are some churches that call themselves brethren in the area, but based on my admittedly not particularly strenuous research, they appear to be part of a different brethren group, the Plymouth Brethren, that traces its origin to 19th century Ireland rather than 18th century Germany. This, combined with my desire to explore a different tradition while abroad, is how I ended up worshipping with the Church of England. I was startled and amazed to discover the sheer diversity within the Church of England. I had visited a couple of Episcopalian churches in the U.S., which is the uh, American equivalent of the Church of England, and I've semi-frequently attended Zion Lutheran Church in North Manchester, Indiana, while in college, and assumed that most Anglican churches in the UK would have similar style services. You might be able to imagine my reaction when the first two churches I visited turned out to be extremely low church charismatic. I'd thought my home congregation of Union Center Church of the Brethren was fairly low church and modern, 
but compared to these congregations, it seemed, if not high church, at least middle of the road. When describing a standard service back home to a friend who attends one of these churches, they remarked that it sounded very traditional. These congregations were quite friendly, but I simply prefer a little bit more structure in a worship service. The next parish I visited had a service much more similar to what I was used to, and I thought I would probably end up there, but I wanted to visit a couple other churches before I made a definite decision. The next Church of England parish I visited Sunday Mass was higher than most Roman Catholic services I've attended. While they did have a female deacon, somewhere there's a document saying a woman can't officiate the Eucharist at their altar, and they've been entrusted to the care of one of the Church of England's flying bishops. On a side note, I was happy to discover the bishop of the local diocese of Gloucester, Bishop Rachel Treweek, is the first female diocesan bishop in the Church of England, with previous female bishops in the denomination having been suffragan or assistant bishops. I attended St. Mary's for the first time basically by accident. I had looked online and seen it was the parish my residence hall was located in, and figured I would visit at least once, just to say I had but wasn't expecting to seriously consider attending. The first Sunday I worshipped there, I was planning to go back to the church I had attended the previous week. The campus chaplain had offered to drive me to town for church, and I was supposed to meet her in the morning. However, I set my alarm for p.m. instead of a.m. and just missed her. By the time it would have taken me to walk where I was planning to go, the service would have already started. On the other hand, I recalled seeing St. Mary's service was to start half an hour later, which would give me plenty of time to walk to the church and introduce myself before it started. While walking through Pressbury to the church, I was struck by how much the surrounding area reminded me of the small Indiana farm towns in which I had grown up. I met with a variety of friendly faces. I knew when I sat in the pew before my first service that I would be coming back to this parish. One of the first things that struck me when visiting St. Mary's for the first time is the sheer age of the community, with the church vastly predating both the United States and the Church of the Brethren. The building itself, while altered and changed many times over the centuries, based on the needs of the congregation and religious policies of the nation's rulers, is medieval, dating back to the 13th century. Its current interior appearance owes much to the Victorians, who extensively renovated the building and made some much-needed repairs in the 1860s. A plaque on one of the pillars near the front of the church proudly commemorates the 700th anniversary of the building, highlighted by a visit from the Prince of Wales who, quote, received the sacrament, a.k.a. took communion, here on the 26th of October, 1980. If you ask the church warden, she will quickly tell you that while the current building dates back to 1280, the church itself is older with evidence linking it back to the Saxon period. Signs of the interior's shifts throughout the ages are easily seen. A small stairway to nowhere in the front of the chancel is all that remains of the medieval rood screen, separating the nave from the chancel. This was a common feature in the Middle Ages. It was topped with an image of Christ on the cross, flanked by his mother Mary and the Apostle John. Following the reform of the English church, many fell victim to zealous reformers, who saw them as relics of the papal antichrist, including, it appears, St. Mary's. Much more recently, a modern rood beam has been placed where the medieval screen would have been. The church's stained glass windows are a mixture of Victorian and modern. The pews, choir stalls, 
an organ, also date from the Victorian era. The organ pipes were moved from a chamber on the north side of the chalice to high on the west wall, with the chamber now serving as a gathering place for tea, coffee, sherry, and biscuits, what us Americans would call cookies, after the service. Being a college student and not a morning person, I usually attend the 11 o'clock service at St. Mary's, its third service of the day. While not quite as high as the other Anglo-Catholic church I visited, it is a traditional high church Anglican service with incense, candles, a priest dressed in full vestments, a robed choir accompanied by an organ, and communion at the altar rail every Sunday. There has been a female priest officiating a few times while I've been attending. While not everyone makes the sign of the cross or kneels for prayer, both practices are certainly present. The congregation for this service tends to skew older, though there are two other Sunday services, an 8 o'clock spoken Eucharist, which I attended once and is very similar to the 11 o'clock service, except without choir and music, and the 9.30 celebrate service, which I have not yet attended, but, as I understand, is more contemporary and tends to attract young families. The parish follows the Church of England's common worship liturgy, which can be found on the denominational website if you're interested in looking at the text. Aside from the obvious outward tappings of high church worship, for me, the biggest difference between this style of service and what I grew up with is the placement of the sermon, particularly concerning its location relative to the celebration of the Eucharist, and the recitation of the creed. Because communion is celebrated every Sunday, it naturally forms the high point of the service. This means the sermon, which I would identify as the high point of most brethren services I've attended, or if not the high point, right before the high point, occurs much closer to the start of the service. This means the sermon, which I would identify either as the high point or very close to the high point of most brethren services I've attended, occurs much closer to the start of the service than I'm used to. Also, there are usually three or four scripture readings from throughout the Bible each service, rather than focusing on a single text. Granted, they are related in theme and topic, and the priest usually only focuses on one or two of them for their sermon. One part I still debate with myself about is the recitation of the Nicene Creed at the start of the Eucharistic portion of the service. Dating back to the 4th century and the earliest church councils following the legalization of Christianity in the Roman Empire, this formula lays out what most would see as the foundations of the Christian faith. Far from a dry relic of the past, it plays an important role in the faith and theology of many Christians around the world. Just for some context as to how important it is, the original text decided on by the council states the Holy Spirit, quote, proceeds from the Father. In the 11th century, the Western Church added the filioque, or the words, quote, and the Son, to this section of the creed. This proved to be one of the major factors in the great schism between Eastern and Western Christianity in 1054 and continues to be a source of debate for Eastern and Western Christians today. It's not that there's anything in the text of the creed I disagree with, or think most brethren would, but given our denomination's traditional insistence on no creed but the New Testament, I still feel a little bit conflicted as to if I should say it or not. Nevertheless, so far I've decided to recite it with the rest of the congregation while worshipping within the Anglican tradition, 
as I recognize the importance it has played in the lives of many of our fellow Christian brothers and sisters as a statement of faith for over a thousand years. As I mentioned previously, St. Mary celebrates the Eucharist, or Communion, every Sunday. Not only that, but a Eucharist service is held most days of the week, so parishioners have the option to partake in the body and blood of Jesus almost every day if they so choose. This is markedly different than my experience at Union Center or Manchester Church of the Brethren, where I would estimate we have communion three to five times a year maximum. I've probably had communion more times in the last few months than I have in the last several years. Of course, one of the reasons why this is probably has to do with the logistics of arranging a love feast service, something I'm personally trying to do with a group of interested friends at the chapel of the University of Gloucestershire. But there are other reasons as well. Growing up, I was told one of the reasons we brethren don't have communion more often is a concern that this sacred ritual of our faith would become monotonous, losing its significance and become something we do without thinking. To an extent, I can see this perspective. There have certainly been times when I've come to the altar distracted and not fully in tune with the significance of what I'm doing. I still can't help but mentally complain about the taste of the communion wafer and sometimes rush to finish it before the priest or servers come around again with the wine. But on the other hand, I've grown to appreciate this regular opportunity to partake in this important ritual of the church. It will definitely never replace love feast in my heart, but I find it an equally beautiful and valid way to do this in memory of me. I've not really discussed it with the priest or other members of the parish, but I would imagine St. Mary's has a different Eucharistic theology than what I was raised with. Anglicanism historically has been a bit fuzzy and flexible, about its official explanation of what happens when the priest consecrates the bread and wine at the altar. Official documents from the Reformation denounce the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, and in some places seem to reflect a more symbolic, memorialist approach similar to what I was raised with. But they were also flexible enough to allow for the belief that once it is consecrated, the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus. Being Anglo-Catholic, St. Mary's most likely holds to that later view, though I haven't actually discussed it with anyone from the church to be sure. Personally, I've come to be less concerned with exactly how or in what way the communion bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus, and instead focus on the significance and meaning of the rite. Regardless, the bulletin at every service at St. Mary's clearly states that all who are able to take communion in their own churches are welcome to do so here. The priest will offer a blessing for those who would prefer it. There was a baptism during the 11 o'clock Eucharist service just a couple weeks before I wrote this script. It was the first infant baptism I've attended, and an interesting experience coming from an Anabaptist background. I didn't realize this would be happening as most of the baptisms I've seen announced in the notice sheet happen on Sunday afternoons, separate from the main services. Naturally, I was a bit surprised when I arrived that Sunday to find the church fuller than usual and the pews near the chancel, where I usually sit, filled with friends and family members of the infant being baptized that day. In some ways, the baptism portion of the service was similar to a brother in dedication, 
with the parents and godparents making a commitment to teach their child about Jesus and the congregation welcoming them into their community and promising to support the family and child in their faith journey. On the other hand, in my experience, these elements form the main emphasis of a brethren dedication service. In contrast, in an Anglican baptism, the emphasis is, naturally, on the baptism itself. While the commitments to raising the child so they are able to form a relationship with God are there, the core of the service revolves around the act of baptism and its theological significance. As an infant cannot make a profession of faith by themselves, at various parts of the service, parents, godparents, and the congregation as a whole made a confession of faith and commitment to Christ on their behalf. Like, and perhaps more so than reciting the creed, this felt a bit strange to me and reflects the very different views of this ordinance or sacrament found in our traditions. Attending St. Mary's has also made me much more conscious of the church calendar. The Church of England maintains the traditional Western liturgical calendar, dividing the year into various seasons, usually marking different aspects of the life of Jesus or the Gospels. As I wrote this, we had just recently celebrated Candlemas, which commemorates the presentation of Jesus at the temple, and for the Church of England, marks the end of the Epiphany season. The holiday gets its name from the fact that traditionally candles were blessed on this day, and we held lighted candles as part of the service. By the time I had recorded this episode, we had just passed Ash Wednesday and entered into Lent. Like most high church churches, St. Mary's quite visibly marks these seasons through the use of liturgical colors, both in the priest vestments and altar frontal. So far, I've seen green for ordinary time, violent for Advent and Lent, white for Christmas and Epiphany, and red for the feast of specific saints, especially martyrs. Aside from the liturgical seasons, different feast days celebrate biblical events, such as the aforementioned presentation of Jesus, or conversion of, of Paul, or, as I mentioned in my last podcast, specific saints and role models from our past. Despite my very different background, both nationally and spiritually, the congregation of St. Mary's has welcomed me into their community with open arms. I've gotten to know several members of the church over a cup of coffee or tea after the service and made welcome at home. This semester, I've hoped to get a bit more involved in the life of the parish and volunteer to help with running the service. In all, one of my favorite experiences at St. Mary's happened in January at their annual Epiphany Supper. While the holiday commemorating the visitation of the Magi to the Christ child is also celebrated the Sunday following its official date, on the actual official Epiphany night of every year, St. Mary's holds a special traditional evening prayer service out of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, followed by a congregational meal. While not a potluck, it certainly has the same feeling of community coming together around food, and I enjoyed getting to know some older members of the parish, as well as meeting a guy about my age who was home for the holidays, but studies in Oxford. I'm glad to have become part of this community for a short time, and feel through this I've grown in my relationship with God. It will certainly be bittersweet when I leave for home in June. So, Dunkerpunks, I want to challenge you to think about the communities you are a part of. 
How has the relationships and bonds you have made within them drawn you closer to God? Or, from the other perspective, in what ways have you been able to be the presence of God in these communities? What experiences have you had outside the traditional dunker punk or brethren circles, if there is such a thing? What can we learn from those who have radically different traditions from what we may be used to? After all, no matter how we worship, we all follow the same radical dunker punk from Nazareth. So until next time, in the words of the Anglican liturgy, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In the name of Christ, amen. Nolan, thank you so much for your message. When I'm hosting the Dunker Punks podcast, I always love to end with a challenge. And that's why I'm so glad that Nolan has provided us with such a provocative and important challenge in his episode. And most importantly, Nolan is exactly right. Whether our church is Eastern or Western, contemporary or traditional, low or high, charismatic or contemplative, we are all seeking to know Jesus and to be reflections of Christ's radical love and great, great news for our communities. Paul writes to the Galatians, Now before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What a joy it is to belong to Christ. And what an honor to be part of a family of faith that stretches far and wide. And how humbling to be part of this community's sacred and joyous mission to love each person as warmly and as openly as God loves us. I just want to say one more time, thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the Dunker Punks Podcast. The Dunker Punks Podcast is produced by a team of contributors who live around the United States and, like Nolan has shown us, are actually producing episodes from all around the world. If you want to get involved, if you want to learn more about the Dunker Punks Podcast, you can always do so by going to arlingtoncob.org slash dpp or by going to dunkerpunks.com. And please be sure to follow us on social media, too. Our handles on Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat are all DunkerPunksPod. And you can also reach out to us and communicate through email by emailing dpp at arlingtoncob.org. And lastly, I will just add that our community, our podcast, is growing, which is awesome. But with more content, with a larger community, with new listeners comes uh, extra expenses, comes extra need for support from our community. So if you want to donate, if you want to join our team as a volunteer contributor, or if you just want to find out another way that you can help out the Dunker Punks podcast, be sure to contact us. We're always looking for people that can help us in creative ways. So one more time, our email is dpp at arlingtoncob.org, or you can connect with us through social media at Dunker Punks Pod. 
Thank you so much to Nolan McBride for putting this episode together. And additional thanks to Jacob Krauss for our Dunker Punks music, to Kevin Schatz for audio editing, and to Suzanne Lay, who is our executive producer. I'm Emmett Wachowski-Eldred, and I'm one of your hosts. Thank you again so much for listening. Stay tuned, and we'll have another episode of the Dunker Punks podcast in a couple of weeks.